0: the neighborhood with work homes and other buildings that support them becomes an adaptable armature for a local community
1: more space flexibility and adaptability and make the work visible
2: they are productive spaces where people share ideas and grow businesses they are low cost on rent on tax and one utility bill
3: we need to demonstrate we can both live in work but also live with work safely, securely, and affordably.
4: A a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to rethink how we can create more productive, more imaginative, more equitable life.
5: We need to conceive of changing ideas as a practical, physical activity.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Work Home Project podcasts. On this episode, we're going to focus on design for home-based work. We're going to discuss how we might change the way in which we design for our neighbourhoods, our homes and our workplaces. So during lockdown, we the Work Home Project team each chose a different aspect of working from home that we'd like to address in some way. We then each made a short three minute presentation on ideas ranging from the neighbourhood scale right down to the smallest disruptive technologies. So on this episode, you're going to hear these presentations followed by some group discussion. It's worth pointing out that this is not comprehensive overview of design for home-based work. For further reading please do visit our website workhomeproject.org where you can find a wealth of uh, information with design guides and research. So the first presentation comes from Frances Hollis. Frances is an architect and emeritus reader in architecture at the London Metropolitan University. She is an expert in architecture for home-based work with research going back over 20 years and she's written widely on the subject.
1: Three ideas for how to design well for home-based work. The first is really obvious, our housing needs to be bigger. UK housing is the smallest in Western Europe, and it's generally just designed for really basic domestic functions. If we're gonna add working into the mix, we need more space. People generally need an extra room to work in, and they like to be able to close the door on it at the end of the working day. This can be quite tiny, an extra six square meters goes a long way. So spatial generosity, both in terms of floor area, but also in terms of volume, street level floor to ceiling height should be three meters. That's my first point. My second point is that housing needs to be flexible and adaptable. Tight fit design really doesn't work well for home-based work because people have radically different preferences and work at home in such a wide range of different occupations, from osteopath to curtain maker, artist to childminder, and in different situations in terms of their household. Flexible and adaptable housing makes different arrangements possible and gives people agency. Some like to keep the home and work aspects of their lives completely separate, while others don't distinguish between the two things at all. Functional neutrality is a useful idea that allows a building's uses to change over time. And two front doors, common in houses and just starting to appear in apartments, makes a huge difference to how flexibly people can use the spaces that they have. The third point is the importance of visibility and collective space. UK housing is traditionally inward looking and designed for privacy. This can lead, lead to real problems with social isolation and occupational identity for home workers. Making the work visible from the street is community building and increases the eyes on the street, making for safer neighborhoods. Where a home-based service is offered, whether it's child minding or ironing, accountancy or psychotherapy, joinery, web design or music lessons, making it visible from the street, strengthens the local economy, and helps to build local social networks. Collective courtyard and garden spaces encourage neighbours to get to know each other, making home-based work visible to people with local community knowledge. So these are my three ideas for how to design well for home-based work. More space, flexibility and adaptability, and make the work visible.
2: The second presentation is from Howard Davis. Howard is a professor of architecture at the University of Oregon and author of three books, one of which is entitled Living Above the Store, Architecture and Local Urban Life. So it'd be no surprise that Howard is interested in the neighbourhood as a work home.
0: One of the issues that's often raised with home-based work is the potential isolation of the worker. And I'd like to suggest that we expand the boundary of the house to include the neighbourhood itself and ask questions about the life of a person during a typical day. Someone working in their dwelling may have the need to be among people and will take care of that need by going for a coffee or to the news agent or to the grocery store or by fetching their children at the child care center. In other words, by doing things that they need to do. In addition, many people who work at home want to do it in a way in which the place they work is not immediately next to the place they sleep or eat. A photographer friend of mine lives in a small basement flat and built a studio for himself that requires a short walk out the front door along the house into the back garden and up a few stairs to the door of the studio. And there are many people who would like something similar, even an arrangement where they have to cross the street or walk a couple of minutes during which time they can enjoy the fresh air and have a short chat with their neighbors. In a sense, the neighborhood is their work home. A neighborhood that supports home-based work includes work homes, but also businesses and dwellings that are not part of work homes, but which have the ability to change and adapt. Neighborhoods with a mixture of people and activities that can support home-based work are not static, with buildings and activities baked into place. The front bedroom of a dwelling may turn into a shop. The accountant closes her business, and the space is taken over by a young architect who lives next door. The house near the main road uh, becomes a restaurant and commercial kitchen. The solicitor retires, and his office turns into the dwelling of a weaver, whose loom is in the former library. In order to allow all this normal life to happen, the spaces are generous and their relative configurations are not so specific that they limit their use to one or two functions. And because people are moving back and forth within the neighborhood, rather than going to the bus stop and leaving it, there is visibility and knowledge of what's going on, and therefore social ties within the neighbourhood. The neighbourhood, with work homes and other buildings that support them, becomes an adaptable armature for a local community that is socially and economically strong.
2: The third to speak was me, Richard Brown. I'm a designer and urbanist who has researched informal collective live-work environments around East London for the last 10 years, and I've put out many publications on that subject. I wanted to discuss the possibility of a new shared house typology. A collective work home is the solution to social isolation, loneliness and expense. In my research I've documented how creative practitioners and artists have long been living and working together in shared warehouses where they enjoy the benefits of working from home but in a communal environment. So collective work homes are great for a number of reasons. They're shared and communal, therefore they're fundamentally social. They combat loneliness and isolation they create support networks uh, new relationships where ideas and ventures are propagated etc they are productive spaces designed for industry and so allowing a flexible range of activity from welding to web design they're low cost all tenants only pay one rent one tax bill one utility bill rather than paying these things twice they're locally significant they bring a 24 7 concentration of uh, practitioners to an area potentially activating the neighbourhoods, local economies throughout the day. So, post-Covid, in a world where we all potentially work from home more often, could these relatively niche communal ideas be transposed from these informal shared warehouses that are fairly marginalised into a more mainstream sort of form of housing that benefits everybody? After all, generation rent is increasing. There are fewer opportunities to get on the housing ladder. And by and large, the nuclear family is becoming a thing of the past. Living collectively has been on the rise for a long time. However, our homes are seldom designed to accommodate living communally, yet alone working from home communally. So to build or to retrofit homes that accommodate this need, we need to consider the fundamental principles of how collective home-based work seems to work. For my research, I can think of it in a few ways. Um, First of all, there's the structure of that typology, the structure of the home. It's essentially three things, it's bedrooms, uh, it's workspaces, and it's living spaces. That's what really defines what it is. And size, four to eight people seems to be a a natural number that comes about. Large units with many people might be great for lowering the cost for everybody, but a bit more difficult to manage socially. Small units, you have the opposite issue. Privacy, a careful gradient from public to private space private bedrooms, communal living spaces, and communal workspaces there may maybe public yards. Management is key. Collective homes often work well when they're self-managed democratically. This can encourage better social engagement and a more efficient use of space. And on use, when managed well, a range of activity should be achievable in a shared workspace environment through careful planning and partitioning. And of course visibility, creating opportunities for work to be made visible to each other and to others outside of the collective unit. Those who might be walking down the street or waiting in a yard, for example. So those are the fundamental sort of outline ideas, but where do we go with them? I can think of two ways. The first way, of course, is to change policy and thereby legitimise what is already taking place out there in the city. And the second way, of course, is to change the way we build new houses. There are already a number of development models, such as co-housing, cooperatives, and community land trusts that seem to be finding ways to bring people close together in housing developments. However, there are few that also provide workspace for renters that resemble these ideal characteristics. So it's my hope that the demands of this ever-growing home-renting, home-working workforce will influence developers, local authorities, designers to adopt these ideas so that all renters alike can work from home, free from social isolation, loneliness and expense. At this point, we took a break to discuss some of the themes explored so far.
5: One, One theme that came through in all three stories in some shape or form is the theme of generosity. Being able to expand the domain within which you move or having more space in the home, an extra room, an extra door. The first question, of course, that arises is there seems to be a fundamental contradiction between this kind of generosity and the efficiency and competitiveness of the capitalist world.
1: I think there are various levels we need to approach this at. We've got a fantastic housing crisis and that's going to need governmental input to change okay so that's one thing this can't be sorted by the market alone but having said that I think that the market is definitely moving to quality over quantity in all sorts of areas you know this sort of whole idea of eating healthily rather than eating the cheapest food that you can get your hands on there's a whole movement in terms of starting to get in touch with actually improving the quality of people's lives through the products that are being produced and i don't think this is only a middle-class pursuit if you like i think there's a broader intelligence about that and the relationship with the planet there was a piece of research that was launched yesterday by living spaces who've been researching i think two and a half thousand people who have responded to a survey on the comfort of their homes during covid There's a direct relationship with discomfort with the more recently built properties. So decade by decade, they get less and less and less comfortable. So I think it's very easy to make the argument that what's being being built is just not acceptable and not something that we as a team, as a group, as a project should be supporting.
3: I, I completely get what you're saying. But I think there's there are large phase of population and these inequalities exist and there's they're societal inequalities reinforced by institutional capitalism, which then negates any opportunity to actually express a broader choice. So you're confined to what your you know what, what your furrow is. How do we tackle those inequalities to create much more inclusive opportunities?
2: For me, the whole point of LiveWork where wherever I've come across it is really been to do with affordability about minimising um, the amount of space that you're paying for ultimately and try to re- try to use space in a really clever way.
1: And so the is, principle yeah. about working from home is that it intensifies the use of the, the overall building stock. At the moment, half our mm. buildings are empty at any one time, more or less. Our mm. homes during the day when we're all out at work or when people are out at work, and offices and workplaces in the evenings and at the weekends. If one takes a macro view, by intensifying the use of the, the building stock, you are actually using space far more efficiently.
2: And the other question about um, the economics of this is about where this is happening. We all know, looking at the news, that there is now a movement, exodus of the city and people moving out into suburbs, uh, moving out to the outskirts of cities where, where land is cheaper and where property is cheaper.
5: Architects love the city for a reason, because it is dense and it is, it is where people mingle and make things efficient. And if we all move out into the green belt and have tiny little knotty houses, one next to each other, we are we're completely defying the whole idea of, of the work-home neighbourhood. And I live in a suburb, so, you know, who am I to criticise it?
4: Say around London, it, you have to go a very long way before places get cheaper. Before it really makes a big difference, and then the commuting costs are quite high, and you kind of condemn yourself. At the moment, it's still a thing that if you're in London, you're considered, or in Manchester, or whatever, you're considered more successful as a business. Quite a hard call to, to downsize and move further
1: out. I was uh, sharing a platform yesterday with uh, Ben Page from Ipsos Mori, but he's got 1,500 employees that are normally in the whopping office, and he was saying, I don't think. I can't see when we're going to need that building again. He said, "I'm one of ten people in the building." What we have to recognise is that we're in a moment of enormous change, and I think that the the need for businesses to be in central London has maybe evaporated overnight. Um, the predictions are that fifty percent of the central business districts will be empty, and as a result, the property value will plummet. And so I think that this is a time of, of really interesting shifting sands.
5: I guess in the same way, the suburbs won't be the suburbs anymore, because if people start working from home, that means that there will be much more interest in, in uh, regenerating the local economy. Um, small town centres will, will blossom. There may be little shops around the corner where there were just the front lawns. So I think there are a lot of changes, as you say, that we, we, we can't quite envisage yet because we're looking at such a different kind
4: of situation. I mean, Dinah Bonnet started something on Twitter today. So she really thinks the 15-minute city is a distraction from a lot of real problems and that not everybody can live in a little um, neighbourhood. Um, they're basically in, in Nowheresville. There's lots of Nowheresvilles, and so it's not really a panacea, at least not in the short term but for me it's like it's a line in the sand to stop people designing these nowheresville's
3: well, it comes back to you know where the inequalities will exist you know you'll have your 15 minute cities and you'll have your hour and a half minute cities you know, <laughs> you know and, and you know what's better and some of the things we looked at for a big debate with um, the government back in 2000 was the danger of creating Uh, fiefdoms in effect where you lose a lot of democratic power but what you do you get very strong local economies these micro economies but actually societally we could be damaged if we don't look at it through a universal approach
4: I suppose like that comes back to the kind of um, village life versus city life I think the reason the 15-minute city sounds good is because it's got the word city in it Uh, if Waltham Forest Village or you know Peckham or whatever they have a kind of cosiness that is village like but it's also quite city like it,
0: it seems to me that we're talking about three kinds of places and all of them are valid right and i think discourse up up until now has kind of said well people are coming back to the city let's talk about the city forget about the suburbs and now a lot of people are talking about the suburbs let's forget about the city right but i don't think we can forget about anything because there's a lot of people in the world and they're all that everyone has a place in which they're gonna be most comfortable socially and economically. So we've got this exodus from the city, fine, you know, and and some people are gonna do that. We've got um, places on the edge of the city, like I don't know what, Peckham or other other sort of, and then we've got the center, and and the center is not going to disappear. And I think what's gonna happen in the center is that if property values do go down, then people who actually need to be in the center are gonna come back to the center. And I'm talking about creative people like artists and craftspeople, all the people who really benefit from being close to each other um, physically, right? And, And what needs to happen in my view is a kind of inclusive approach to what the living, you know, the, the human environment is gonna be, and not a kind of uh, choice which would say, okay, let's support the city, or let's support everyone moving to, to Lincolnshire or wherever, it, or wherever it is. It's, it's all of those
3: yeah so for me it's about how can the physical architecture support a new social architecture so again about thinking about the different dynamics about how we want to live our lives how the uh, variety of housing types so sort of support both uh, employment but for me it's around sort of future care and support
0: you know and it could be education it could be a number of other sort of facets it, it's the variety of types and also the the variety of locations. I think the next
3: step is from, from what Richard was saying, sorry Richard, is about how you move from your collective model to one which is community led. So we're still looking at very much a sort of individual versus public sort of model. But actually, mm-hmm. if we can create much more of a mutual approach to both use that space for co-working and co-living, I think that's a, you know, a really interesting way. And that can go down right to the way that, um, Howard, I think how you described, you know, there's the architect's practice that becomes um, a, a library or, a, you know, whatever you described, you know, those sort of transformations.
2: Kicking off the second half of our presentations, Jeremy Porteous spoke about home-based work for an aging population.
3: Hello, my name is Jeremy Porteous. I'm the Chief Executive of the Housing Learning Improvement Network in the UK. I'm also proud to be a co-founder of the Work Home Project, uh, brought together earlier this year, very much as a result of the impact of COVID and how the pandemic uh, was impacting on the lives of many people. And my particular interest is through the lens of housing for an ageing population and for people with disabilities. Um, I've written extensively over the last 15-20 years on housing design and in fact I'm the co-author of many of the happy reports and also a recent report by Reba on age-friendly housing design. One of the things about those happy reports was to try and draw out issues around ageing in relation to our future health and social care and we adopted a set of 10 care ready design principles to think about how we build, construct, form and manage the space that we live in and whether we need to think about um, both older age but also the types of disabilities that can impact us in later life. So again, the orientation, the use of space, the functionality but also making sure we have adequate storage for for equipment as well as things like uh, access to outdoor space are really high on our agenda. Many of those are things that we're now teasing out in relation to creating work-ready space as well. So again, the work-ready, happy principles that we're designing are very much around creating comfortable work environments for, that are acoustically and well-ventilated, that can be generous in terms of their internal space, and flexible of use to create spatial separation so we can divide work from home. And under COVID, those are really important. What we know is that COVID has demonstrated both a number of housing inequalities, but above all, health inequalities. And those health inequalities mean that people are experiencing loneliness and isolation. Uh, a recent Rebirth survey found that nearly 70% of people are also finding that they have increased mental anxiety. And so the issues around the pandemic are impacting on their mental wellbeing. So again the way we design both the homes and our dwellings but also the relationship with work the neighborhood and our lifestyles is increasingly important we need to demonstrate that we can both live in work but also live with work safely securely and affordably
2: so our fifth presentation comes from kenny ash who is the founding partner of ash Sacular architects and obviously is an in- keen advocate for home-based working like the rest of us. She now talks about how we might make more space for home-based work by other means.
4: So as Frances said we need more space, more adaptable space to create more visible space for the work home. Living through the government's austerity programme and now pandemic, who's not weary of being told to be enterprising, find space which doesn't exist, find time where it doesn't exist and find money where it doesn't exist. This is especially true if we're struggling with any big responsibilities or disabilities. And yet maybe imagine the new digital tools, yes, problematic, but still incredible, might magic up this space and freedom. Up until now, we've had a century of oversimplification, which has been incredibly damaging for family life and for a sense of community. The way that we've coped with the complexity of growing families and ageing families and dynamics of work life is that we put a great big wall down between them. So when you go off to work, you don't need to worry about home. And when you're at home, you're excluded from public life. This has led to, I think, a lot of unfairness in relationships. where Somebody has made a massive lifetime sacrifice, which really wouldn't have been necessary if there'd been more trust around work and where it happened. Now, coronavirus has catapulted us forward 20 years And a new digital infrastructure gives us a once in a lifetime opportunity to rethink how we can create more productive, more imaginative, more equitable life for everyone. That's including children, the next generation, who might see more of both parents. Does this sound a little utopian? To believe, just look back a decade when meeting a life partner would involve a very noisy, smoky pub and zillions of uninteresting conversations. Where now you can start swiping from the kitchen table on the most delicate task of a lifetime and think about what it means to be interested in someone share sudden thoughts strange ideas and to explore what it means to be intimate so looking forward it's not such a great stretch to think that work can change be less about currying favor drudgery and more about free-flying networks we can barter skills trade in slices of time we can create spaces to come together from our work homes, kind of shared hyperlocal spaces in real life, which can be amazing and distinctive. Maybe adapting and reusing redundant space, clever digital management, quick theatrical changes and brilliant storage. This is the church of our time, the place which will eventually make the work home and its global networks the big players on this planet.
2: Our sixth and final talk comes from Joseph Colmeyer, who's been part of the Work Home Project for a long time and is Head of Critical and Contextual Studies at the School of Art and Architecture at London Metropolitan University. In his presentation, he talks about the various ways in which we might affect change in the face of the difficult challenges facing home-based work, broadly speaking.
5: I want to talk about a paradox
2: and its possible
5: solution in the context of the work home. There is a problem with the word social in the context of social injustice and the structures that uphold social injustice in that we tend to see injustice to be the result of a certain kind of behavior, of a certain set of ideas, of the allegiances people have, the ideologies that they follow, um, or the bias that they have. And that leads us to think that if we want to enact change in society or in in the city or the world, we have to change people's attitudes. The problem is that it is very difficult to change people's attitudes and it is much easier to change the structures, the very real structures that represent ideas and that have been created by ideas and to then use this changed environment as a sort of laboratory or stage on which new ideas can be explored. One of these physical environments that I'm referring to is, for example, the typical segregation between work and home and the relationship between these two different modes of being. And the kind of spaces and the kind of cities that they have led to. We need to try and provoke in people a desire to change these environments, but in order to do that it seems we do need to change their mind in the first place after all. So this is my paradox. My solution to this paradox is that we need to conceive of changing ideas as a practical, physical activity. And that happens in a performative way. This means that before we invest in trying to change infrastructures or changing minds, we should invest in small performances in which all these changes can play out in the form of experiments, in the context of commoning, um, community projects, debates, possibly temporary architectures. If we can produce a sense of what this change might be like and why it might be positive through these little performances, then we are creating an environment in which much more profound and bigger change can happen as a result.
2: So that concludes all six talks. We now turn to discussing some of the themes in the past three talks around design for an aging population and accessibility, as well as the various forms of design and intervention that will bring about change and the changes that are taking place in our society around digital technology.
5: I have a question, Um. Jeremy, that's something I've always wondered. Generally, we tend to see people who have so-called special needs as being the minority of society. And, of course, that is a total illusion. And we tend to think if we design homes from that perspective, it is as if we're designing homes for only a small, small minority of society. But, of course, that is a total misunderstanding. But I think there, there is a need to change perception in that respect. I mean, you're very experienced with this. I would love to hear what you think about this.
3: Here in the UK, we have tended to take a siloed approach to design for people with disabilities. We are now moving significantly to saying we want to meet all abilities, irrespective of disability. And I think that, that generosity of space that's come through today, I think, means that you can adapt, you can flex to accommodate a broad range of needs from the multi-generational housing to to somebody who has profound um, learning disabilities or or physical disabilities.
1: I think the term is universal access isn't it Jeremy, the idea that anyone can break their leg, anyone can have a child in a pushchair, anyone can can need access, all of us will do at some point in our lives. I I really like the idea of a 10% extra where you're designing for really good access and it's almost as if that te- that same 10 percent would solve the problem for the work home
3: yeah what we found in generally is that well the market is starting to look at this because they can see that there's a um, a market for this and are willing to pay a little bit more to put a bit more quality into the design uh, because it is attractive it is encouraging people to move and thinking about what their what their housing circumstances will be um, to meet their different lifestyle choices.
1: Joseph I love your idea of the reuse the conversations the the projects that could happen without actually needing to build anything and my my thoughts immediately turned to Grenfell. Grenfell is such a symbol of bad housing of how we have failed our most vulnerable members of our society. And so the primary thing that COVID has highlighted for me is the social and spatial inequality. You know, it's, it's what I said earlier for the middle classes or for those who are lucky enough to have sufficient space, the lockdown has been tolerable, but if you haven't got sufficient space or if you're not actually allowed to work from home, then the choice, to work safely at home hasn't been there. It's put whole populations, uh, you know, in great danger. Yeah,
5: I, I had to think again of, of this, this, um, this quote from Isabel Stengers that I mentioned in one of our very first get-togethers, that the world's, the world's full of refugees and not enough space for refuge. I think that is, that is true. And the, the extra 10% or the space or... It is all highlighting the same kind of problem. There's no extra slack for anybody to go with any issues. Um, when we have debts, we are at the abyss, um, insolvency. When we have needs, we, are, we, we run into a wall. Wondering how, or I'm fascinated by the idea that Canny's redefinition of what family, although she didn't do that explicitly, creates space. There's like the, the space making power of thinking, you called it thinking cleverly, but it's also thinking through love in a way, or friendship.
4: I I think I was thinking less about love and more about the fact that I was always kind of jealous of people who had been able to bring up their kids in in an open courtyard with other kids, you know, a kibbutz or you know, just just a few back gardens actually. I think collectively bringing up um, kids and that is a kind of 20-year affair, really. You do spread the load and you spread the uh, love, if you like. And, and this kind of atomization, the kind of siloed nature of the home, whether it's horizontal or, or, or vertical, it's a kind of stupid idea, isn't it? The, the general idea is that by cooling our resources and, and our challenges, we are going to be able to make a better jigsaw puzzle.
5: A lot of our conversations range around finding some sort of balance. The nuclear family is is problematic, but on the other hand, it is important to have privacy. And, and I think so many of the scenarios we've described today um, suggest that you need to have access to both. So housing needs to be made in such a way that you can move from being in, in, in a very communal situation to a private situation. And if you need it, that you can open up and expand and call on the help or resources that are out there. And if you don't want to, that you can happily have the space to be on your own. And so I think this is extremely important. And I think the 20th century has seen so many extreme uber-communal approaches, like whatever, or uber-private approaches, and that exactly finding a little
3: bit of this. At the
4: same time, I think there's a tendency that people tend towards... uh, retreat rather than expanding into their communities, showing vulnerability or showing need or showing enthusiasm. So I think that setting things up spatially, architecturally and in organisationally, I suppose, um, in governance, such that people, you know, it's expected that there will be a bit more of that.
2: You know, we've talked about design from quite a large scale already. The suburbs in the city, and we talked about the typology in the street. And I think what you both touched on is um, the potential role of disruptive technologies as we've seen them. That's something that's totally viable. You think about the way in which Airbnb and a whole other range of other disruptive technologies are now completely commonplace, and the way that you could use something like that to use space in a much more clever way and share space.
4: I use TaskRabbit for an elite tasker to come and just do one job for an hour. I mean like I have the idea at one o'clock and at two o'clock they're there and at three o'clock they're gone and the task is done. The the idea that there's a fixed rate for um, somebody in childcare or somebody doing another service or making another product maybe needs to change. It's it's dynamic. It depends on need. It can be managed through um, a disruptive technology. Yeah. Do you it's see what really, I mean?
5: I think in architecture teaching education, we should talk about airbnb much more in that context like to look at it actually how technology and and urban fabric collide to create something totally powerful and strange and slightly slippery and and scary at the moment but it's here to stay isn't it I,
4: i sort of think like we are going to have a different relationship with technology you know beyond just the apps and stuff you know there might be some voice says look you can't go for that competition there aren't the hours in the day if you if you set your algorithms that your kids are going to be happy or something maybe something comes back
2: (laughs) at this point we talked about the effect of digital technology on well-being and mental health particularly on younger people amongst us we have all recognized these effects within our own households throughout the pandemic We then discussed how this problem may be linked to other housing issues, such as access to good quality green space.
1: Certainly, what we found with COVID is that working from home, having access to external space and if people have the opportunity to actually work in nature, this is enormously helpful. Um, Mm.
4: Well, certainly under lockdown, but, but... I mean, working from home, you can actually, you can take those slithers of time to water the tomatoes or, or knead the bread and, and have that more rural lifestyle that you can't really do if you've got your eight-hour work and your commute. It sounds a bit random, but I don't think it is. I think it's a more holistic um, mental space, if that makes sense. I think that's right. Lots of the people that I've interviewed have said that they...
1: When they take a break from their work, which they tend to do really regularly, like working in half hour blocks, they'll go Mm -hmm. and weed the garden, put the washing in, uh, put some bread on, something like that. And I'd say that the work doesn't stop, doesn't stop them thinking about whatever they're doing, but it just Mm -hmm. gives them a little break and at the same time gets them through their domestic, um, their domestic work. So yeah. it felt to me as if it the three true. ideas fitted like a glove together. Actually, all the ideas fit together really beautifully. It's extraordinary. There's a sort of single, cohesive entity. And it seemed to me that your idea, I really liked it because I thought you were, you were setting up a social structure that was directly complementary with Richard's collective work home structure and Howard's neighborhood structure and in fact Jeremy's multi-generational living you could see how that absolutely could be overlaid on the the collect collective work home situation and how the work home neighborhood I loved Howard's idea of seeing the work home not just as the building but the neighborhood as well
2: so there you have it that's a collection of design ideas from each of us at the work home project. We've discussed the home itself, the neighborhood, new typologies, universal accessibility, the power of the individual, and how digital technology might help us reorganize our lives. Design for home based work is a huge subject. So for a more comprehensive overview, please do check out our website and have a read of the many publications that you can find on there. Our next episode is going to be on policy. so do watch this space.